Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Just End the Suffering podcast. I'm your host, Mike Phillips, and this podcast features New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. In each show, we'll talk about the latest news in New York sports, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, or more in our opening tip. We'll also have interviews, social media buzz, and wrap it all up with our two-minute drill. Settle in and enjoy, because our opening tip is coming right now. Y'all ready for this? Today's opening tip concerns the New York Mets. Everyone knows the Mets got off to an 11-1 start and been one of the worst teams in baseball ever since. The Mets have gone just 20-40 and 40 over their last 60 games. 20-40. and 40. Despite what Mets manager Mickey Callaway said about the record not mattering, that's really bad. This has led to a lot of chatter about how the Mets need to blow everything up and especially trade either Jacob deGrom or Noah Syndergaard for a ton of prospects to improve their farm system. For a while, I dismissed that chatter as pointless speculation, especially given the Mets' history of refusing to flat-out say they were rebuilding, with the Yankees putting together super team after super team in the Bronx. Then Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic drops a report a couple of days ago that says the Mets are willing to listen to offers for virtually everyone in an effort to get younger and more athletic. Obviously, Rosenthal noted that they want to keep their younger assets right now, like Ahmed Rosario, like Brandon Nimmo and Michael Conforto, like a Seth Lugo or Robert Kesselman and even DeGrom. One guy not mentioned there is Syndergaard. The Mets may be more willing to deal. He would command a ton of talent back. When the White Sox traded Chris Sale to the Red Sox two years ago, they gave up four huge prospects to complete the trade. Yuan Moncada, Michael Kopech, Luis Alexander Basabe, and Victor Diaz. Moncada's in the majors already, while Kopech and Basabe are top 15 prospects in the White Sox farm system. If the Mets can get that kind of talent haul for either DeGrom or Syndergaard, they certainly have to consider it. Here's the problem with that line of thinking. No matter how great the prospect return is, they are still just prospects. Remember last thing's Millage? Or Fernando Martinez? How about Generation K? All those guys are considered to be can't-miss prospects, and none of them did a thing for the Mets. Everybody loves to point out the Yankees deals from two summers ago, when they got back Glaber Torres, Clint Frazier, and a bunch of other talented youngsters for rentals of Aroldis Chapman and Carlos Beltran, along with two and a half years of Andrew Miller in Cleveland. That situation is much different as the Yankees dealt away two relievers and a 38-year-old outfielder in his walk year to land talent. The Mets are being asked to deal either a top-five starter in baseball in DeGrom or a guy who can reach that status in Syndergaard. That's not easy, folks. What the Mets have right now is two elite starting pitchers in their prime. That formula helped the Diamondbacks win a World Series in 2001 with Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling. What team in baseball want to deal with DeGrom and Syndergaard up to five times in a seven-game series? The answer is none. Now, there are obviously exceptions to this rule. If the Yankees call up and offer a package of both Torres and Miguel Andujar for DeGrom, the Mets should strongly consider taking it. That's a trade with two young players who are already contributing to the major leagues with years of team control out of them. You don't always get that in trades. Look what happened when the A's traded Josh Donaldson to Toronto in the 2014 offseason. Donaldson had four years of team control left, and the A's got back four players. Brett Laurie, Kendall Graveman, Sean Nolan, and Franklin Barreto. Not exactly a who's who of stars for a guy who went on to win the MVP and lead the Blue Jays to the ALCS. The Mets have been on the other side of this kind of deal, too, when they got Johan Santana from the Twins in 2008 for Carlos Gomez, Philip Umber, Kevin Mulvey, and Diolis Guerra. Now, granted, Gomez turned to a nice player, but you can't bet the Twins would love to do that deal over again. The point is that there are ways to rebuild the Mets without liquidating two of the best pitchers in baseball for, in essence, a couple of lottery tickets. The Mets can invest more in international scouting, unearthing the kind of talent that the Dodgers and Yankees seemingly grow on trees these days. They can also spend more money in free agency. If you look at their books, there's no reason this team can't afford to lock up both DeGrom and Syndergaard, sign Manny Machado to anchor their lineup for the next 10 years, and add an elite closer to the roster over the winter. 
History says they won't do that, instead continuing to ride the middle and throw a bunch of band-aids on a roster that needs a talent infusion in the worst way. In a sport where you need to be all in or all out these days, the Mets need to commit to direction and stick with it. More on this in just a moment as we chat with John Cominger and Metsradamus on ways to fix the Mets. All right, and we're back with the first ever guest on the Just End the Suffering podcast. This is somebody who I've worked with frequently over the past year at Metsradamus, the Mets blog run by the Sports Daily, and was always finding entertaining ways to talk about the Mets. He's the main blogger on the site, John Coppinger. John, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Can you tell me a little bit about your history rooting for the Mets and how you started the blog? Uh, well, I've been rooting for the Mets since uh, I was uh, six years old. The first game I ever went to was uh, was a game that Tom Seaver pitched eight innings against the Reds in Shea Stadium. And uh, I've been a fan ever since. I've uh, I've been a, uh, a partial season ticket holder on and off right now on. And, uh, you know, I started the blog basically because I got bored with some other stuff and uh, I wanted to write and I was, uh, so I, uh, I discovered this medium called blogging and I said, you know what, let's give this a whirl and it's opened up a lot of doors for me and uh, it's, it's funny because it's fun to blog when the Mets are good and uh, in a certain perverse way, it's, it's more fun to blog when the Mets are bad because it's very cathartic and you can get some stuff out and... Uh, and uh, just kind of exude your love for the team in complaining about them, if that makes any sense. Oh, I totally get that. I feel like that's been the experience this season for me, when especially with how bad things have gone lately, just letting the anger out and just writing a rant for about like 20 minutes and then just letting it go and feeling like, oh, I feel a lot better now. <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> that's, what it's, that's what it's all about. And it can, uh, it can manifest itself very well in, uh, in terms of writing. You know, it's, uh, I, I feel like... Uh, I feel like when they lose a big game, it's like okay, I got to I got to get something out. It's like okay, this is this is a good one. I feel much better now. The same the same exact thing as what you're saying, and we've gotten uh, we've gotten a lot of practice at that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now this seems to be the question of the season when it comes to the Mets. If Fred Wilpon gave you the keys to the franchise, what would you do with the Grom and Syndergaard? I keep them. I I don't think I think these are players that well a I think they're players that should have been signed to long term deals a long time ago. They should have been, uh, uh, especially DeGrom, with uh, the uh, amount of control that they had with them and the amount of production they've given them, and not only in the, the regular season but the playoffs. I mean, forget even what happened this year. I mean, this is somebody that's proven himself to be a big-game pitcher. And uh, Noah Syndergaard, Syndergaard is somebody that uh, you, you just know he's got the talent to have a really bright future ahead of him. And uh, these are guys, these are cornerstones of the franchise you don't want to – you don't want to let go. And uh, I, I don't think you fix a farm system by trading one or two pitchers. I think, uh, as you've said, that's a fallacy, and I certainly believe that too. These are guys that you build around, you find better players around them. You, you fix a farm system by putting more money in scouting and developing. And that's what the Mets need to do. If I had gotten the keys, if I get the keys to uh, the castle, I put a lot more money in scouting and development and uh, overseas scouting and I find better players and, and give the team more options, more depth to, uh, to call guys up. I mean, they just called up uh, a guy named Kevin Kesmarek, a 26-year-old outfielder, because they're just scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point, and they can't have Dominic Smith play left field. And Dominic Smith's playing left field because all their other outfielders are hurt. So that's, I think, what I would do. It, it would be more of a long-term solution without it being a total tear-it-down Astros rebuild. 
Okay, now let me offer you this hypothetical. I know this won't happen, but let's say the Yankees called you and said, okay, we're going to give you a package with Glaber Torres and Miguel Handahar as the headliners for DeGrom Syndergaard. Then do you change your mind? I might. If, if Torres was involved, I, would, I might. I would definitely think about it. But, uh, you know, the Yankees have said that Torres isn't going to be involved, and I, I can't blame them. You know, Torres isn't a prospect anymore. Torres is a, uh, is a bona fide major league player now with a, with a bright future. He had a bright future before he came up. This isn't Kevin Moss where he takes everybody by storm after being a middling prospect. You know, this is Glaber Torres, who was a super prospect when he was with the Cubs. So I wouldn't expect him to put him in the deal. If he does go in the deal, then, uh, then the Mets owe it to themselves to talk. But uh, at this moment, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. It's amazing to think that this team was in the World Series just three years ago, a potential billion-dollar rotation and a seemingly endless title window. Now they're back at a crossroads again. Who do you assign? Yeah. It, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, it's, it's funny you say it's a, it's a billion-dollar rotation, but the Mets really didn't have to pay for pitching. Think of how bad the, as shape the Mets could be, could have been, or will be once they start ha- having to pay for this pitching, once they have to make a decision to lock up guys like the Grom and Syndergaard. And maybe that's the reason they're talking about trading those guys. Yeah. Who do you think is the most blamed for why the Mets are in the situation that they are? Sandy Olsen for failing to properly build the farm system, the players for not performing, or ownership for not putting enough into the team to add the right pieces of the roster? Well, I think you can always blame ownership. I think that's kind of a, a, uh, a running theme throughout the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, ownership Ownership does put money into the team every so often. I think once they start to feel the heat from the fans, I think they do kind of loosen the purse strings a bit. I think that this particular team is on Sandy because the money has been spent wrong. Uh, I wouldn't have, uh, and and this isn't hindsight, I wouldn't have re-signed Jay Bruce. Uh, Jay Bruce was very productive in 2017, but I would have spent the money on uh, Lorenzo Cain and a catcher. And uh, maybe they wouldn't be in much better shape than they are now, but at least they'd be be a little more athletic. Uh, Kane, last I checked, had a on-base percentage around 390. So uh, I think that uh, I, I think that, Sa- but I think Sandy's biggest fault is trading all those guys last year for bullpen help that was supposed to help this year, and yet these these bullpen guys we haven't seen Jamie Callahan, Drew Smith just came up. Jacob Rame's been hit or miss. Gerson Batista isn't ready. So this, the master plan that he had, which also included A.J. Ramos, it's been a huge bust, and we're seeing guys like Hansel Robles and Chris Flexen again. So, yeah, I put a lot of blame on Sandy for this particular season. Yeah, like also besides the point they just took on lesser prospects and already dumped money, that's a whole other story. But the problem I Absolutely. find— the problem I find with Sandy is the fact that like he doesn't put enough of a premium on defense, like bringing Bruce back, forcing to play Conforto or Nimmo in center field where they don't belong. And it also, I mean, Frazier is the only guy they've signed in the last like, three years that actually has offered some defensive ability to the roster. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even Frazier, you wouldn't say, is, is completely athletic. And he's another guy that uh, has just started to raise his on-base percentage, and, and he's also been hurt. Uh, but, yeah, it was a disjointed roster even back in 2015. You had a lot of first basemen, a lot of corner outfielders. And then once, you, once the problem solved itself this year, Sandy brought it back by bringing not only Bruce back, but signing Adrian Gonzalez, who really wasn't the problem this year, but shouldn't have been signed in the first place. I thought it, it created a, lot, a very disjointed roster. And you still kind of have the same thing because you you're, you're depending a lot on Jose Batista 
who started out really well with the Mets, but then since has really put it in the tank like he like he was with Atlanta. So it's uh, and and again, it's forced them to bring up a guy like Kevin Kazmarek, who's uh, who uh, we don't know anything about except uh, for spring training. Yeah, I remember your your point a couple of weeks ago about the whole idea that the buy low is never a buy low with the Mets because they always run the guy out there for two hundred at bats and then he ruins the half the season. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. It's uh, and that's what risk. That's what risk is. And everybody calls these uh, low risk, high reward because they only think of uh, the risk as the monetary risk. But it's the risk of giving two hundred at bats to a guy that clearly doesn't have it anymore or can't can't answer the bell because he's hurt like Gonzalez you know Gonzalez had a bad back and Gonzalez is actually better than I thought he would be and he still wasn't that good so yeah you're you're you may not be risking a lot of money and that's the way ownership sees it but they're risking time they're risking at bats and they're risking seasons yeah now let's go down to my favorite topic of the day right now which is Mickey Calloway I can't believe some things that have come out of his mouth lately like what he said a couple of days ago, excusing Jason Vargas for giving up seven runs in Colorado because it's Coors Field and blaming the media for New York, the team struggles recently. But the one that got me yesterday was when they asked him after the game, he's like, well, we don't worry about the record here. They're 20 and 40 over their last 60 games. At what point yeah. the record should matter. My question to you is, do you think he will last beyond this year? Because of the rate he's going, it seems like things could change really quickly for him. It's a uh, it's a really good question, and, and I don't I don't know how to answer that because I think if Callaway goes, because Callaway is clearly Sandy's guy. Callaway is the first manager that you could say that Sandy had a, a hand in hiring here. He was he was uh, he was given Terry Collins, so you couldn't blame Sandy for anything that Terry Collins did. This is Sandy's guy, and when you combine the fact that this is Sandy's guy with Sandy's roster, then I think. Callaway's future is really predicated on Sandy's future. And I don't think that, and with Sandy having one more year in his contract, I don't think they're going to do anything with him. And if they don't do anything with him, I'm not sure they're going to do anything with Callaway. And this, this team has proven, you know, the front office has proven not to be very impulsive in firing guys. I mean, look how long Terry Collins lasted. He lasted four really bad years before he turned it around after the team got Cespedes. So and then lasted two more years after that. So I actually do think that Callaway is going to make it past this year. But if he doesn't, then that means Sandy's gone too. Yeah, my question about that specifically, because I remember last year there were weeks about how the Mets would be interested in Joe Girardi. Is this a situation where you think the Wilpons could get involved and say, you know what, we can't take this anymore. We're going to throw Mickey to the Wolves and make the fans happy, and we'll try and bring Girardi in to give us some credibility? I think it depends on the amount of pressure that the fan base puts on him. I don't put it past the Wilpons to have Twitter burner accounts like uh, Brian Colangelo did. I (laughs) would not put it past them. I do think they monitor the temperature of the fans on social media. I think it's a a part of what they do. And I think if if that heat ever gets too hot, then maybe they would do that. But the other, the flip side of that is that I'm not sure that Joe Girardi is isn't too much of a personality for them. I mean, they remember how it was with Bobby Valentine and Bobby and Bobby Valentine was very successful, but near the end, he butted heads with the general manager. I'm not sure that they want a manager who isn't a yes guy, especially now in, in these, in this climate, in these days where the manager's responsibilities have changed and the general manager's responsibilities have grown. So I don't know if Girardi is so much a Wilpon guy. Okay. 
let's fast forward the winter here. Let's assume that DeGrom and Syndergaard are still here. The Mets trade off Familia, Estrubel, Cabrera, and Wheeler for prospects and or salary relief. What's your mm-hmm. offseason plan for the Mets? Oh, that's a great question. It's uh, you would You would hope that they would be in on a guy like Manny Machado. You would even hope that they would be in on a guy – uh, like Bryce Harper, if they wanted to uh, pivot and uh, and put maybe put him in center field, I uh, my blueprint would uh, would would again I would be in on Machado, but I would focus on getting this team better in the future. I would focus on uh, on bringing uh, signing Degrom and Syndergaard long term and building around them. It would ha- it would take some patience, and maybe you, you do try some band aids here and there, but I think the team just needs to be more athletic, and I think the team needs to grow from within and, uh, and, and perhaps have it so that their farm system is better so that the Mets can dictate the terms of deadline deals and not be at the mercy of having to fix their farm by trading guys like Syndergaard and DeGrom. Anybody else, sure, you can, uh, you can trade for... Uh, for guys, and the other thing I would do is that I would pay the freight and get the better prospect. And uh, again, I don't know if the Wilpons would do that, but uh, yeah, I think my vision is more long term because I think I don't think you can keep putting band aids on this franchise. So, in other words, expect Daniel Murphy back this winter. Well, that's <laughs> it's it's funny because that's such a Mets move, and uh, I think that that's that's one of those guys that Mets fans have been crying about ever since he left. And I think that uh, to try to win some of those fans back, I think they will try to, to get Daniel Murphy. I think that's a slam dunk for them, especially since they're going to have a, uh, a hole at second base when uh, Cabrera is finally traded. That's interesting. I know you got to run, so if people want to hear more from you. How can they do that? Oh, well, uh, it's, uh, they can always uh, join us on our blog at metrodomusblog.com. And uh, I've... Uh, I uh, I do uh, a radio spot on Sunday nights on WLIE 5:40 a.m. Uh, Sports Talk New York with uh, with Mark Roseman and AJ Carter. So you can uh, always hear me there on uh, Sunday nights at 7:02 at 5:40 uh, a.m. on your radio dial. Okay, and uh, I don't know if you mentioned this, but like, what's your social media handle? I know you're a great follow on Twitter. Oh yes, I am uh, on Twitter at Metrodomus. I'm also on Instagram, but I haven't at uh, same handle. But I haven't uh, posted there in a while. I'm not. I don't. Uh, I don't take a lot of pictures. I don't go to a lot of interesting places. But uh, you could always follow me on Twitter and uh, Instagram at uh, at Metrodomus. All right. Thanks for coming on, John. No, pl- no problem. Pleasure's mine. Thank you. That was John Coppinger, otherwise known as Metrodomus, and well worth a follow on Twitter. One key reason the Mets are in this predicament is their poor farm system, which entered the year ranked 27th in the bigs, according to Baseball America. There's almost nothing at AAA in Las Vegas, but there has been some intriguing talent in the lower levels, including AA Binghamton. My next guest is a guy who is around the team every day and someone I have known going back to my days at Mets 101, and that is Steve Popolowski, a sales manager at the Rumble Ponies. Steve, how are you doing today? Doing good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I remember the first time I met you in person was at a Mets-Tigers game at City Field in August 2013. I remember a lot about that game, except that Dice K was on the mound for the Mets, and he gave up a homer to Miguel Cabrera to hit the Acelico in about three seconds. Yeah, was that uh, was that the Jay Horowitz bobblehead night? Yes, that was the Jay Horowitz bobblehead <laughs> night. I, I was just moving, and I, I found mine uh, still in the package. So it's <laughs> worth anything, let me know. Yeah, I have to find nine. It's somewhere around. But anyway, I'm, I, you work for the Rumble Ponies, and that name's relatively new. Can you talk about how you guys went from being the B-Mets to the Binghamton Rumble Ponies? 
Yeah, I joined the team in May of 2016, and uh, one of my first days on the job uh, was our we had a staff conference call um, where we found out what the final six choices would be that would go to a fan vote, and uh, and each one of them had an explanation behind it, um, just like any any rebranding uh, that's been taking place in the last few years in minor league baseball. Uh, they're trying to tie in kind of a, a wacky off the beaten path moniker with something historical or something that a town uh, or a city is known for uh, where the team plays. So we had a bunch of options out there, and uh, I think three of them were references to the, the carousels here in Binghamton. We've got like more carousels per capita than any place else in the world. Um, it's pretty cool. They've been here since, um, you know, mid middle of the last century. Uh, Endicott Johnson Shoe Factory. Um, they they were all over the place here, and uh, and their owners wanted to give their their family something to uh, do for free in the summertime, and uh, and they installed these carousels at all these various parks. So uh, Binghamton is the carousel capital of the world. Not a lot of people know that, um, but of course Binghamton Carousel Horses wouldn't have been a great name. So we kind of, with the help of Brandios, uh, the, the graphic design company that is behind a lot of these rebrandings, uh, came up with the Rumble Ponies moniker, and that's how you get the the carousel horse that's got like the flaming, you know, hair and steel mask and everything on it, and of course then the uh, the popular actual Rumble Pony, um, our our mascot Rowdy with the boxing gloves on. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, didn't your tweet about that name change go viral at one point? I had to turn off notifications on my phone because it was killing my battery um, that next morning. Uh, I just was in the stands. It was uh, a good opportunity to snap a picture of six of our players at the time holding up the six team choices. And uh, the team account retweeted me, and then everybody retweeted that. So <laughs> it was on ESPN and a bunch of other uh, news outlets. So, um you know, you got you got a nice mixed bag of responses, like uh, any team that rebrands does, from people that hate it and can't believe you'd ever change the name, to people that love it, to people who you know are indifferent. So, um, good news for us is that this community's really embraced it in the last uh, you know year and a half, really since we announced it, and uh, it's really reinvigorated the franchise. Um, you see our gear all over town. You never saw any that stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's been really cool to go out and see people wearing the hats, wearing the shirts, talking about the team, and, uh, and you can sense like a genuine excitement about coming to the next game. Yeah, while I have you here, I have to bring up Peter Alonzo, who's been the big name in Mets Miley circles. Alonzo started the year with you guys and mashed in 314 with 15 homers and 52 RBIs for getting promoted to Las Vegas this week. What can you tell me about Alonzo for having been around the team every day? Uh, the kid can hit. I mean, from the day he showed up last year, we've got a, uh, you know, we're like most minor league ballparks. We've got two levels of, of outfield signage. And uh, the first wall, of course, you clear that, it's a home run. And there's a second wall. And uh, that those signs are probably 12 feet off the ground. And uh, he hit two, either his first game or one of his first couple games he was here, he hit two off this IBM sign which is in West Center Field, it's got to be, 
you know, getting close to 400 feet out there. And, like, just we hadn't had a guy with power like that. You know, everything had been kind of about Dom Smith and, and Ahmed Rosario, who are great players, but not that kind of power threat where they're just going to absolutely mash the ball. So from, like, day one, we're like, this kid can really rake, and he has not stopped even in – April this year when it was 35 degrees every night and a lot of the guys were hitting in the low 100s, he was still hitting 330, 340. And uh, we knew it was just a matter of time. And then when you saw Gonzalez uh, get released, we were like, well, <laughs> the writing's on the wall here. Uh, and sure enough, it was like three days later they called him up to Vegas. That's crazy. Another intriguing guy to start with you guys was Jeff McNeil at 327 with 14 homers and 43 RBIs for joining Alonzo Las Vegas. Do you have any other insights on McNeil? Because he's not a guy really people have heard about before this season. Yeah, to be honest, I, I wasn't really uh, too familiar with him either. He he actually, it's, it's funny that those are the two guys that got called up because that first game when all the hype was about Tebow and his first pitch three-run homer, which was, of course, probably a top five moment in franchise history as far as, as how awesome that was and the energy when that happened. Um, but before that, Alonzo did hit the ball like deep left center, probably another 430-foot shot. Um, and then after the Tebow home run, McNeil pulled one right down the line. It went over our batting cage and dented a car in the parking lot. So we were kind of like, Hold, you know, hold the phone here. Like, Tebow's moment was pretty awesome, but, like, these two other dudes just, like, absolutely murdered the ball. So that was kind of like an eye-opener. Then he got hurt again. He's had some injury trouble. Uh, I think back to where it looked like he, you know, was more slated to be on the team last season, but that had some derailments and was out for a little bit this year. But, hey, when he's healthy and in the lineup, you know, he, he was great for us. Great for him. And uh, it's exciting to see where, where he's going to go next. I'm glad you brought up Tebow because you guys have the Tim Tebow experience this year. What's it been like having him in Binghamton, and how much has his presence juiced your ticket sales? Well, I definitely I think it's it helped us more where essentially everybody's advertising for us. You know, we, uh, we're like on the news every night, and, and all they want to do is talk about Tebow. And, and you know, as – I kind of wish they would give a little more credit. You know, towards the end, Alonzo was getting a little more recognition um, and McNeil uh, to a lesser extent because uh, there are some great players here and, and still some great players on this team, even with our, our two biggest guys called up. Um, but at the same time, it's, it seems to be all anyone's talking about, like it's the Rumble Ponies and Evo. So uh, from that, that respect, it's been great. Um, it's really cool to see when you look at kind of sales reports and see where people are buying tickets from, and you've got them coming in from Albany, you've got them coming from Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, uh, all points south in PA, uh, people coming up from Jersey, you know, uh, even some New England folks. You know, you'll be, even when we're not playing a team like Hartford or Portland, um, they're coming into town uh, to see it, and uh, it, that's pretty cool. So um, merchandise sales, of course, are great. Um it's definitely a, a neat vibe. He steps up to the you know, get bigger round of applause than everybody else. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been really neat to see and uh, and give him some credit too. He's been awesome with our fans. I mean, he signs almost every day uh, after he stretches, almost to the point where we're like, "Come on, can we got to start this game?" 
So um, <laughs> definitely not anything like, you know, a prima donna athlete that, you know, is too good to interact with fans. So, I mean, he's very gracious. He really likes meeting people. Signs a lot of autographs, takes a lot of pictures, and, uh, and it's, it's really cool to see. That's very interesting. One thing I love about minor league baseball is all the crazy promotions the teams do to get fans into the stadium. What are some of the more interesting things that you guys have coming up for uh, Binghamton? <laughs> We've got uh, tomorrow night, weather weather permitting. Uh, we're hoping for some sunny skies, but it's uh, looking a little nice right now. Uh, Jurassic Ballpark night. Uh, we've got specialty caps and jerseys we're wearing. Uh, Jurassic Park's 25 years old this year, which uh, makes me feel ancient. But uh, we've got uh, animatronic dinosaurs. There's a company called Dakota and Friends um, who does these traveling shows. Uh, so they'll actually have dinosaurs here in the park. Um, and, and we'll have the jerseys. Everything's themed after that. And uh, everybody's calling. How do we get those hats? It, it mimics the... Jurassic Park logo, but it's with a skeleton rumble pony in the, the circles and stuff like that. So um, those are really neat. Um, coming up, too, I mean, we've got the whole jam-packed schedule uh, all the way through Thursday. Uh, the, the biggest promotion next week when Friends in town is we have our uh, sandwich showdown, um, the Binghamton installment of it. We rebranded for a game as the Binghamton Speedies. Speedies are a marinated chicken sandwich um, that's popular here in Binghamton, was, was invented here, and uh, kind of our, our local food, and uh, and threatened, rebranded as the Trenton Pork World. So we're having a, a sandwich showdown um, as part of the AA Subway Series, and uh, we're really looking forward to that on Thursday. Uh, we'll have some specialty foods that night, and uh, combining pork roll and Before I let you go, can you let any fans who might be interested in going to Rumble Ponies game know the best way to get tickets? Yeah, you can call our office uh, anytime. We're, we're open 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, and, and all day on game days at uh, Thanks for the time, Steve. Anyone wants to follow you on social media, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter a little bit still. <laughs> After the big thing there, uh, it's uh, at SteveBingRP on Twitter. So, uh, on the website. But, right. uh, yeah, follow me. Uh, it's a good way to keep up to date with uh, what's going on with the team. And, of course, follow the uh, at RumblePonies on Twitter as well. All right. Thanks for the time, Steve. Thanks, Mike. Good to hear from you, bud. And we're back with today's two-minute drill, which is all about the NBA draft. There weren't a ton of big storylines of the draft last night. Kawhi Leonard is still a member of the Spurs. We didn't get any dramatic tweets from LeBron about his future. The most intriguing thing to me was the New York Knicks pick. The Knicks chose at 9, and they had a few very good options. Mikhail Bridges from Villanova was on the board, and he's a polished player ready to help an NBA team right now. 
Michael Poor was also there, and he was the guy I wanted them to take, especially given his immense talent. The Knicks took neither, opting instead to open Dorsey and take Kevin Knox out of Kentucky. Now, the kid booing Knox is absolutely ridiculous. Knox has a lot of upside and could be an intriguing pro. The problem is that the choice seemed extremely safe, and that's not what the Knicks need right now. The player Knox is drawing comparisons to as a pro is Otto Porter Jr., who is a solid starter now for Washington, by no means a franchise type of guy. Porter has a chance to do that. Yes, his medicals are scary. The fact that Porter played only three games in college is alarming, and anytime you have a pro athlete with a back issue, it's very risky. What you can't deny, though, is Porter's talent. Porter entered college as projected top two pick in the draft. ESPN compares upside to Kevin Durant last night, and Jay Bill said that he has the offensive ability of a number one pick. If you have a chance to get a guy like that at number nine, you should jump all over it. Unless your doctors believe that Porter's going to be out of the league in five years, there's no reason not to add him to Christos Porzingis as the anchors of the franchise. Porzingis is going to miss half the season anyway. There's no point in worrying about contending right now. The goal is to make a strong team for 2019 when you're hoping to convince Kyrie Irving or Kawhi or Clay Thompson to come to the Garden. Unless Kevin Knox is the next Donovan Mitchell, he's not going to do that. If Porter flashes Durant-like ability, he can, he can do that. Even if he misses time this season, the Knicks could let him get healthy and hope he emerges like Joel Embiid did this year. Knicks would be bad, but they could get a top three pick and market three potential young stars to future free agents. Instead, it's Porzingis, the hope Knox is better than Otto Porter, another likely late robbery pick. Typical Knicks. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests John Coppinger and Steve Popolowski again for taking the time to talk about the Mets. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-331. If you made it to the end of the show and have any thoughts, tweet at me with the hashtag Horwitz Bobblehead. I'm Mike Phillips. This is the Just and the Suffering Podcast. I'll talk to you soon. Hopefully you have a better weekend than Mets fans.